uh, and Brooklyn's wedding shower Sunday night at the church. So a lot of things going on in April. We're glad all of you are here. Great to have Brother Kleinditz. Lord bless he and Sister Macy. Uh, they're living in Louisiana now, just uh, north of New Orleans. <laughs> and that's what they say down there. Actually, he's more of an Easterner, but the Lord bless him. Give him a hand. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Excited to be in the house of God this morning. Amen. Can feel the, the presence of God here this morning as we sang together and worshiped the name of God. Uh, just so excited to be here and to, to worship with each of you. I'm going to be directing your attention this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 16, Romans 4, 16, while you turn there, I give honor to your pastors, pastor and sisters, Joe Strand, so honored to, to be here with them, with all of you, I've known that of the Joe Strands from a distance for a number of years and their ministry and their impact on our organization as a whole and it is just with great honor to be here with my my wife as of last year we celebrated one year of marriage so we are we're becoming experts at this thing <laughs> or so we think again it's it's just a joy to be here with all of you on this Palm Sunday, celebrating the, the, the name of Jesus, the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. And as we look forward to Easter of this, this coming week, this holy week, and knowing that Easter is coming, that the resurrection is coming, that we can stand in faith and know that God, at the end of the day, that at the end of Calvary's cross, at the end of Golgotha's hill, at the end of the day, there was resurrection, that we have peace and joy and hope this morning because of, of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, Romans chapter 4, verse 16. This is speaking, the, the entire chapter of Romans 4 is speaking of Abraham. And in this passage, we're, we're talking about justification by faith and the faith of Abraham. Romans 4.16 says, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promises might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things, which be not as though they were. And this is where I really want to take my text this morning. This, this next verse, verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Who against hope believed in hope. When everything was hopeless in Abraham's life, when it seemed like the promise, when it seemed like what God said was going to come to pass, 
seemed a distant reality against hope, Abraham believed in hope. Can we go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we, before we, 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 we go into this message, I ask that, that God would meet with us here in this place. Can we bow our heads? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this privilege of coming on this, this day, this Palm Sunday to worship you. God, we ask that for the next few moments as we go into your word, that God, you would speak to each of us. That God, you would be with us here in this place. That God, we would hear from you ultimately. In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we look at the life of Abram, Abram has this encounter with God when he is 75 years old. For 75 years, he's lived in his father's land. He's, he's lived in the culture and the customs that he's used to. And after 75 years, God speaks to him. And he says, Abraham, depart from this country. Depart from here. And in, in Genesis 12 to 15, we read of the promise that, that, that God has for Abraham. That he's going to make him a father of many nations. That, that, that he's going to bless him. That when he blesses Abraham, the people who, who bless Abraham, God's going to bless them also. Those who come against Abraham, well, God's going to fight against them. And we read this promise. And so Abraham steps out in faith. He, he obeys God. He departs from the country. He goes out seeking this place that God promised. And for the next 24 years... Abraham and Sarah walk through the wilderness. They build altars. They have experiences with God, but they have no children. There is no sign of this promise. There's no sign of what God said was going to come to pass. What God had promised was going to be their end. There was no sign. For 24 years, our text says, against hope, they believed in hope. And 24 years later, at this point when Abraham is 99 years old, God comes again and he renews his promise. He says that, that, that he still meant what he said 24 years ago, that, that what he said is still true, that his promise is still sure, that God hasn't forsaken him, he hasn't abandoned him, that God hasn't forgotten what he said. And he comes and he renews that promise and that covenant. And for all of this time, the experience that Abraham had, the experience that they had with this promise seemed not to intersect with the reality that they were living in. God had made a promise. God had established a covenant. But the, the promise and the covenant that they had been told did not seem to fit the reality that they were living in. It did not correlate with their, their experience, with what was taking place in their lives. So they kept the faith. They kept faith in a promise that they could not see. Their eyes were set to a distant future that appeared to be out of reach. Walking through the wilderness, it appeared that this physical metaphor of their lives, of walking through this dry, barren wasteland, of having no promise, seeing no evidence of what God had said would come to pass. And there they were, wondering, Waiting for a promise. But they held on to hope. 
They held on to the hope that God had established them. They, they held on to the promise that God had given them. They, as they walked, as they progressed, they, they held on to what God had said was going to come to pass. What I want to preach to someone in this house this morning is that if your present experience, if the life that you seem to be living in at this moment does not seem to line up with the faith that you have in God, the faith in the word of God, the faith in the promises of God, that there, there seems to be where is the connection, where is the promise that I know God is true. I know his word is true. I know his word is sure. But as we look at the life, as we look at where we sit this morning, as we look at the problems that may be outside the doors this morning, we can ask, where is the answer? Where is the promise? Where is the answer that we're looking for? The, 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 the answer that we're listening for as we're looking for God's working hand, as we're looking for God to move, we can feel like Job. As Job says in Job 23, he says, I go forward, but he is not there. I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, he's, he's not there either, but I cannot behold him on the left side. I cannot behold him as I go forward or as I go back. When I, when I look on the right hand, he hideth himself there. I want to remind someone in this house this morning that God has not forgotten about you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He's, his word is not void. His hand is not empty. God has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. God is in this house this morning. His promises are here. As we sang about earlier, the blood was shed. We, we have victory in this house this morning because of the redemptive work of Calvary's cross. That if we're sitting here this morning, I want to remind someone of the goodness of God. That his promises are yes and amen. That he is my shield. He is my strength. He is my provider. That his mercies are new every morning. That his grace is sufficient. That his love is everlasting. I want to remind someone here today that God is still good. That his word is still true. He's in this place this morning. Can someone testify of the goodness of God in your life? of what God has done in your life, of, of the promises that God has brought to fruition. When, when I was young, I was, I was diagnosed with a, a um, growth disorder. And the, the, the doctors had um, gone through numerous tests. Had, uh, I went through MRIs and bone density tests and blood tests and... Uh, over a period of about six months, it was a litany of tests trying to figure out what the answer was going to be, what the ultimate prognosis would be. And our doctors at this point pretty much came to the fact that the only real answer was to um, take an injection of hormone and, and steroid drugs that I would have to inject every single day. And by the end of them, ultimately, I would probably have to have a, a liver transplant because of what the, the, the drugs would do to my body. And it went on like this for about a year of trying to figure out before we started the treatment. Before all of this was supposed to take place, my, my family attended a, a minister's conference in Alexandria, Louisiana. And on one of the, the last evening services, a, 
uh, a minister got up and preached, and he was preaching about, about our heritage, about the lineage that we have in this faith. And so he brought all of the, the minister's children on the platform, and while I was among them, as I was walking up, one of the first ones through the door, we made eye contact, and he brought me up to stand beside him in front of almost 3,000 preachers just standing on the platform. I have no idea what is going on. Like 20 minutes beforehand, I was in a different building, and we're just hanging out. Like, it's the end of service. We're just waiting for them to finish. And now here I am standing in front of 3,000 people trying to figure out what's happening. In the middle of this, he tells a personal story about when I was a child. And at that point, at the end of the message, he, he prays for me. And it was in that service that I was healed and never, never had to take the treatment, never had to. Because the, the, the point being, the point being this morning is that no matter what it may look like in the moment, no matter what it may look like from the, the finite perspective that we have on this side of eternity, God's promises are still sure. His word is still true. That God is in this house this morning. In Jeremiah 29, we find another portrait of, of, of this level of uncertainty in hope. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has captured Jerusalem. And the surviving Israelites have now been taken back to Babylon as captives. At this point, the Israelites' homes have been burned. Their land has been ransacked. Hope seems lost. The situation is dire. Dreams have been shattered. Families have been fractured. And at this point, at this point where home is nothing more than a memory. It's a smoldering pile of embers way back in the distant past. In the midst of the pain and the fear of this situation, Jeremiah writes a letter to a broken nation in exile. Jeremiah's purpose of the letter was to simply reassure the crushed nation that God had not abandoned them. So, through blurry eyes, still red from freshly shed tears, the Israelites read. And in Jeremiah 29, 5 through 6, it says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from, Bab from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build ye homes and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and that ye may increase there and not diminish. Now, if you were to just come into the story right there, if we were to remove all of the context, if we were to remove the, the understanding of this nation is in exile. Their, their homes have been ransacked. They are captives in this pagan land. You would read this and, and almost kind of arrive at the, the end result that this is a uh, personal correspondence between maybe two distant friends. Maybe they just moved to a different state or a different country and they're saying, hey, you know, build a nice house, plant some gardens, you know, enjoy your time there and you know, enjoy the harvest, live the good life, have kids, marry your kids off, 
just, just have, have a good life here. But this is Babylon. This is, this is not a place for the good life. They are captives. They are in a strange land. There is, as we read down further, they, 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 they talk about how can we sing the praises of God in this strange land. This is Babylon. And if you're an Israelite reading this, it's like, God, are we on the same wavelength here? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? This is Babylon. This is not Jamaica. It's like, what is, what is going on here? It's during this context of, of this city, of this king, this exact situation that we read the famous accounts of the three Hebrew boys who were cast into the furnace because they refused to bow down to a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. That is Babylon. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's in this place that God tells them, build homes, flourish, have children, enjoy the harvest. It's in the context of their captivity that God is saying, make the most of where you're at. God's saying, in the middle of this situation, in the middle of captivity, that you can flourish, you can have a harvest. In the middle of this mess, as it seems, God's saying there can be good that come out of this. In the middle of this mess, there can be hope that can come out of this. What I want to remind someone here this morning is that maybe, like, maybe you, like the Israelites, you can relate and looking at, at life through just the days of the situations, through the, the, the days of the storms that come about in life. You've read the Word of God. You've come, you've heard the pastor or the minister preach. But you go back home and face the heartache and face the trouble. It seems to be this continual storm. It's another pressing issue. It's always something else. Like the Israelites, maybe the circumstances of your life don't seem to line up with the promises of the Word of God. Don't seem to line up with the hand of God. Of Where is God in the midst of this? Where is God in the midst of of my life. How can I be prosperous in this captivity? How can I increase in the midst of life's problems? How can I flourish in the midst of the darkness of these circumstances? I want to remind someone in faith today that even in the dark night of the soul, in the midst of trouble, in the heart of the problem, where hope seemed distance and faith seems foreign, where God seems out of reach. Like David proclaimed in his aged state, he said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. He gives strength to the weak. He's, he's peace to the restless. God is love to the broken. He's mercy to the unworthy. He is in this house this morning. He's in, he is here in this place. As we lift up praise and worship, we can feel him in this house that even when he seems distant, even when God seems far away, that his love is near, that he's as close as calling upon his name, that he is in this place. And as we worship him and as we, we, we lift up our praise, we can feel his presence near. I want to remind someone that even in the darkness of the night, that God is not far away. 
He has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He, he hasn't left you to your own demise. But God is in this place. He's in your life. He's in the middle of whatever the trial or whatever the circumstance that hope can be found. Hold on to the hope that you have in your life. Can we just worship God here for a second and thank God that he's not abandoned us, that his blood is still sufficient, his promise is still sure, that he is still in this place. Mm. In Luke 15, we, we find another example of this account when we read the parable of the prodigal son. In the story, for those that are familiar with it, the the father finds himself in a place where his youngest son has defied expectation and norms of how he now approaches his father. The youngest son comes to him and says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. It's this future tense that is coming, that will be. It's not now. The promise, the, the, ultimately the share of property, the inheritance is not for him at this moment. It is coming. It will be. But he comes and in short, the, the, the younger son comes and says that he does not want to, to wait ultimately for his father's death to receive what will be coming. But he wants it now. He wants his inheritance now. It's, there's this danger that we see in this parable of impatience. Of not being willing to wait for the promise that will be. Not being willing to wait for what God is doing. What, what ultimately in the account we see that the Father is taking place. We can further understand this point as we just rewind a little bit in the ministry of Jesus. And go back to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Within this passage, Jesus is fasting for 40 days and Satan comes to tempt him. In the first temptation, Satan tells him to turn this stone into bread. This temptation really is this aspect of, in the moment, this knee-jerk reaction. Just do this. You're hungry. You've been fasting. Just do this. Just eat of this bread. It can ease the momentary discomfort that you're feeling right now. Here's a quick answer to solve just this present solution. The, the second temptation, Jesus has shown all of the kingdoms of the world in an instant. And he says they can all be his right now. They can all be his in this moment. There's this impatience that is woven in the text when we look at how Satan is tempting Jesus. We get to the third temptation. It's this final temptation that in essence seeks to force God's hand in the matter. They're standing on the edge of the temple mount. And Satan says, throw yourself from here. Are, are there not angels that will, that will come, will save you, that will prevent you from falling to your death? That the temple is God's dwelling place. This was the very house of God where God dwelled. And it's here that Satan is saying, tempt God and God will intervene. Forcing God's hand in the matter. Forcing God's, God's working hand to bring about a solution. We look at these three temptations and there's this single thread of impatience, this unholy hurry as we look at bread, kingdoms, and protection. As we look that Satan is talking to Jesus, God in flesh. 
as men, he, as a man, he was tempted and he was tried. But what was the purpose of the temptation? If we look at the text, this is Satan and Jesus. There's no one else really here. What's the purpose of this temptation? Why is Satan trying to tempt God in flesh? What's the ultimate end result that he actually thinks is going to happen? I believe whenever we look at the text, in my opinion, I believe the answer lies down the road from this exact moment. Because we understand that the destination of the cradle in Bethlehem was the cross at Calvary. The temptation of Jesus that Satan sought to provoke this crooked answer to the pain and to the agony of the cross was do this, worship me. You, you can have the bread, you can have the provision, you can have the kingdoms. Why preach about the coming kingdom of God when you can have the kingdom right now? Why preach about the, the fact that God can heal, that God can deliver when we can force God to do it right now? Why wait when it can be done right here? Why experience the pain? Why climb Calvary's cross? Why experience the humiliation and the agony when we can, we can negate all of it right here, right now? When we look back at the prodigal son, this is exactly where the parable is teaching. This is the, 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 the moral principle that the parable is trying, that the parable is trying to convey in the sense that here is a son who comes to the father and he wants it now. He wants his share of the inheritance. He wants his share of the land and of the money. He wants it now so he can use it today. He is not interested in doing the work and putting in the years of effort on the family farm. He's not interested in applying himself to what will be. He simply wants what is right now. He wanted the reward but without the sacrifice. And that's exactly what impatience does in our lives. It too often looks at me and instead focuses on today. Instead of looking at the years ahead, at those around us. It, it's blind to the future, blind to others. So you can imagine the pain of the father as he watched this fading shadow of his youngest son drifting down the lane from the family estate. You can imagine the pain of the father and the hope and the future that he had in this man as, as he drifts down the lane, as he walks away from what could have been. It was more than just this loss of stuff. It was more than just this loss of property and this loss of money, but it was a loss of a son and himself, a loss of the future, a loss of possibility. As we look through the accounts, we see the unpainted details of the story of a father who finds himself constantly looking for his son, continuing to look and perching down the lane, looking, waiting in hope, waiting in expectation, waiting that one day his son will return. We reach the end of the story and find that the son returns. He he returns back home knowing that, that, that even those in the, 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 the lowliest of his father's house were still better off than where he had found himself that day. Even those who were the loneliest of the, of the homes were better off than the decisions he had made and where he had found himself on that day. 
It is within that context that this father, who had not lost hope, who had not lost hope in the situation, but was waiting in expectation, was waiting in joy, waiting for a son to come down the road, waiting because he had this hope. He had this expectation that all seemed at that place to be beyond the edge, just out of reach. It seemed to be too far. It seemed like the son had gone beyond this point. But this father remained hope. This father maintained this faith that one day, at some point, his son would return. The Bible declares in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Come to remind you this morning that God has an expected end in your life. God has an expected end in this church. God has an expected end in your faith and, and what God is doing in your life. Come to remind someone this morning to hold on to hope. To hold on to what God is doing in your life. To hold on to what God is doing in this church. Because as we continue in faith, as we continue to walk in hope and expectation, we see that God will bring the promise. God will bring the faith that, that, that we know to be there. That God will bring it about. This Sunday in conclusion, this Sunday is Palm Sunday. It is today that we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He was celebrated by the people of Jerusalem. They broke palm branches off as we read at the beginning of this service and they laid them on the street. This act was symbolic of submission to authority that Palm branches at the time were commonly laid on the street or were waved in celebration of victory in war, of victory in the moment. In fact, as we even progress through, we even find that ancient coins had palm branches on the back of them to symbolize the victory that was celebrated. These Jewish disciples were expressing their hope in Jesus, trusting that he would be the one who would give them victory over their oppressive Roman government. He would, just not in the way that they expected. As the musicians come, in Zechariah 9, 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king coming unto you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey even upon a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus, God in flesh, the King of kings, He was not disconnected from the pains of this life. He felt the sting of grief and loss. He knew the hurt of betrayal. He did not come riding into Jerusalem on Arabian horses and a gold chariot. He was a humble king. He was a lowly king. A king who has associated himself with sinners. A, see, a king who associated himself with the common man, the common woman. He was a king who felt the, 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 the sins and the weight of the nation. A king who had associated himself with common people. Just a few days from that very moment, Entering into Jerusalem, 
Jesus would once again be walking outside the city. This time it would not be to do miracles in Capernaum. It would not be to feed the 5,000. This time he would be lifted up and nailed to an old rugged cross. I'm here to remind someone this morning that we have this hope. This life has its present struggles. There is hope that we find that goes beyond the veil of this life. That goes beyond the veil of the situations, the storms of our own experiences. Because of Calvary's cross, because of the tomb, and because of his resurrection, we have hope this morning that has never left us. We have, never, we have hope this morning that has never forgotten us, has never forsaken us. We have love that is everlasting. If we could all stand this morning because of this work, because of the cross, we can gather here this morning in hope, in faith, in expectation, knowing that at the end of the day, God's promises are sure. His word is still true. His blood is still sufficient. I want to open these, these altars, the front this morning, those who would like to come and pray and say, maybe you're, you're facing the storms of this life. Maybe the perspective that you're seeing just isn't lining up with this faith that we have in God. I want to encourage you this morning that you can come here to the front. We'll pray together in faith, knowing that at the end of the day, God's promises are still sure that God is still in this place. I'd encourage you to come to the altars. We pray together this morning, knowing that God is here. We can hold on to hope this morning because God is still in control. God is still in control this morning. 